Good evening, church family. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, can I please ask you to turn with me to Luke 23. Luke 23. Uh, as you uh, would have heard, we're starting a new evening series on the short, uh, on the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, from the cross. This is to prepare us for uh, Good Friday. Uh, these sayings are popular. Uh, much has been written and said about them, and so I'm not going to say everything that there is to, be, to say about them. But I do want to take a bit of a unique approach uh, in this series, and that is I want to look at these seven sayings from three particular perspectives. Uh, as we look at them, I want us to ask three questions. Firstly, what is the theological truth of this particular saying? What truths do we learn about God and, and general truths do we learn that are normative and authoritative for us? Secondly, what is the devotional relevance of this passage? Where is the devotional significance of this truth as we walk before God for us? And then thirdly, what is the missional impact of this saying or this passage? How does this affect how I live, not just before God, but before others in this world? And my desire really is that as we consider these sayings from these three perspectives, the theological, the devotional, and the missional, that we will be challenged and comforted by these truths. Uh, this is approach, an approach that I've been helped by, by reading through the Scriptures, applying these perspectives, especially when it comes to meditating upon God's Word. And I trust it will be helpful for us even as we apply these perspectives to these sayings. Now with that said, by way of preface, uh, let's look at our passage, uh, Luke 23, and I'm just going to read verse 33 to 34. And so let's read God's word together. Uh, Luke 23, 33. And when they came to the place that is the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Only so far in the reading of God's word may he reform our lives to its truth. Uh, let's quickly pray as we ask God's help for us as we understand this passage. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening asking your help. We ask particularly that you'd help us to see Christ and Him crucified. Help us to see wondrous things of the Lord Jesus Christ even in His moment of agony. Uh, we know that for the unbeliever, the cross is a stumbling block and folly. Yet for those who are yours, your people, uh, help us to see your wisdom and your power in the cross. Help us to know Christ and Him crucified. And so we plead, Holy Spirit, help us to understand the things that are freely given us by the Spirit. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Someone who was once asked what forgiveness is, uh, to which they gave this answer. They said, forgiveness is the odor that flowers breathe when they are trampled upon. Forgiveness is the odor that flowers breathe when they are trampled upon. Uh, dear friends, may I suggest to you that the cross of Calvary beautifully exemplifies that definition. Here we see the beautiful and glorious Son of God 
trampled upon and crushed by evil men. And as he is crushed by sinful evil men, he breathes out this prayer, this pleasant aroma. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Is this not a sweet and pleasant prayer? Is there a greater prayer for any sinner to hear than this? As we consider this prayer, what's the theological truth that really stands out to us from this saying? Well, the first thing I want you to see is really the theological truth that we see is that of the compassion of God, the compassion of God. You cannot and must not miss the position and the place of this prayer. Think about it. Jesus has just been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been abused. He has been scourged, which means the, the flesh has been ripped off his back as he's been whipped by the Roman centurions. He's had to carry that beam of the cross, bloody and tired, through the streets of Jerusalem and up Calvary. And when he gets to Golgotha, when he gets to the place of the skull, he's forced on that cross. He's lacerated back. He's, he's pressed against the, the rough wood. His hands and feet are, are married to that tree as nails are driven through them. But it gets even worse. Once secured, he's lifted up naked and ashamed. And as the cross slides into the hole in the ground, his, embody, his entire body jerks with the impact. Imagine it, his blood splatters on the ground. His open back scrapes down the splintered wood. His flesh pulls more tightly onto those nails. In fact, in order to breathe, in order to even speak, his entire body must lift itself up by pulling on those nails. Imagine flesh and bone gripping iron on that tree. Imagine the agony. And realize it's at that moment, at that moment where his nerves are the most tender, at that moment where his pain is the most excruciating, at that moment where his shame is overwhelming, at that moment he prays. And he doesn't pray for himself, no, he prays for his enemies. While they rejoice and, and revel in his suffering, he prays for their good that they would be forgiven. And, and realize he, he's not praying for good, innocent people. No, he, he prays for the evil, for the guilty, people who are performing sadistic and violent acts on an innocent man. He, he prays for them. One scholar makes the point that the cross is the enactment of the worst we are. It's the embodiment of the most sadistic and inhuman impulses that lie within us. I think about it. Here at the cross, we see the deepest depths of human depravity. Depravity that mocks and victimizes and seeks to kill the very Son of God. Yet here 
where the depths of man's depravity are plumbed, here where the heights of man's rebellion is reached, here where an innocent man is being crushed by evil, here we find that sweet prayer, that pleasant aroma that exudes out of Christ. Father, forgive. Dear friends, dear church of God, behold compassion. Behold the heart of Jesus that bleeds violently with compassion for sinners. And realize it's not just the compassion of Jesus we see, it's the compassion of God. How so? Well, Jesus on the cross is fulfilling his role as our high priest. He's the high priest given to sinners like you and me at the cross. And notice who Jesus prays to. He asks the Father to forgive. Now, why does he pray that way? Throughout Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, Jesus directly forgives sin. In in Luke 5.20 and Luke 7.48, he tells the paralytic and the sinful woman, your sins are forgiven. See, if Jesus, as God in the flesh, has authority to forgive sins, then why does he ask the Father to forgive them? Well, because, dear friends, Jesus on the cross takes his place as our high priest. Uh, Do you recall Isaiah 53? I'm sure you remember how that passage prophesies about the Messiah, that he will be despised and rejected by men, how he will be bruised and wounded and chastised for sin, that he will be crushed by God as an offering for our sin, an offering for the guilty. And, and him being crushed will be the cause, cause of our healing, our peace, and our righteousness. Now, we know that passage well. We rejoice in that passage. But do but you know how that prophecy ends? Isaiah 53, 12 says this. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Uh, dear friends, Jesus' prayer is Isaiah 53, 12, come to life. Jesus is the God-given high priest who intercedes for sinners. Why? Because God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a God of compassion and who provides His Son as our high priest. Uh, Jerry Bridges, in his book, Uh, Trust in God offers this description of compassion. He says that compassion is the deep feeling of sharing in the suffering of another and desiring to relieve that suffering. Well, isn't that what we see at the cross? God has seen how we suffer under the weight of our sin, how we suffer under the punishment and the guilt of our sin, and He sends His Son to leave and rescue us. How? By becoming sin for us, by bearing the guilt and the punishment for our sin. See, the God who is holy, just, and righteous, the God who who cannot look upon the guilty with favor, the God who will by no means clear the guilty, that God has given His holy, just, and righteous Son to become sin for us and to be our high priest in our place. 
And the point we must see is this, that the God of the Bible, the God behind the cross, the God on the cross, is a God of compassion, who in compassion gives Himself to save sinners like you and me. And therefore, is this God not worthy of praise? Not only is He a God who, who desires forgiveness, but realize He's a God who provides forgiveness. But realize Jesus' prayer was answered. It was answered. How? By Jesus actually dying on the cross. Now, we know when it was answered. We know that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were convicted of their sin. Many were convicted for, for shouting, crucify to Jesus. They were convicted and they were converted, and many of them received forgiveness. But how was that forgiveness achieved? Well, it was purchased by the death of the Son of God. Tell me, what does Hebrews 9.22 tell us? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. See, Jesus does more than just pray for our forgiveness. He actually purchases, purchases it for us with His precious blood. Oswald Chambers was right. He said that when Jesus prayed, He really meant this. Father, forgive them and condemn me. Forgive them and condemn me because that's the only way that sinners will be freed if someone else is condemned in their place. And so realize it is only based on the sacrifice of His Son that the Father forgives. After all, that's why the Father sends His Son so that He would forgive sinful people like you and me. And so again, beloved, behold the compassion of our God who provides a way of salvation and who purchases for us our forgiveness. Now, the compassion of God is the theological truth of this passage, but what devotional relevance does it have for us? Or may I suggest to you that the compassion of God is the comfort of sinners. The compassion of God is the comfort of sinners. Now, I'm sure we all know of or have heard about Nicholas Copernicus. Uh, Copernicus was a great mathematician and astronomer whose studies and calculations changed the way we viewed our universe. But what we perhaps do not know about him is that when he was on death's door, he wasn't concerned about whether or not he would be known as a great scholar or astronomer. No, no, the thing that was most concerning to him was whether or not he was forgiven before God. And listen to what he wrote on his tombstone. Copernicus offered this prayer. I do not seek a kindness equal to that of Paul, but forgiveness, which thou didst grant the penitent thief, that, he said, I earnestly crave. See, what Copernicus recognized is what we should recognize, and that is this, our greatest need is for forgiveness. Our greatest need is not better health. 
It's not more money to live a more comfortable and prosperous life. It's not even excellent education for us and our children. It's not even living in a just and prosperous society. No, our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins. Tell me, do you think any of those things will help you on that day when you stand before God? Do you think your health and your money and your education and where you're from, do you think that will help you when you stand before a holy God as a sinner? No, it won't. And so we need to see that our need is to be forgiven. And have you this evening come to see yourself as a sinner in need? Have you seen yourself to be one who will have to give an account to a holy God? See, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, because that is our greatest need. But notice what else Jesus prays for. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In one sense, the ignorance that Jesus has in mind speaks of and is applied to the Romans and the Jews who, who crucified Jesus without knowing really who he is. Yet in another sense, uh, the ignorance that Jesus speaks of applies to every single one of us, to all of us. Because all of us, let's be honest, do not fully grasp the greatness and the gravity of sin before God. Uh, Stuart Olliot uh, has once made this comment. He said, every sin is worse than we think. Uh, do we not see the truth in that? The, the very fact that we so easily fall into sin, the very fact that we so easily pursue sin shows us that we don't think it's as bad as it is. Now, we know we mustn't do the serious sins like hate or, or rape or murder or do any major crimes. We know those are bad, but we overlook other sins. How bad can lying be? How, how bad can greed and lust and anger be? We're not harming anyone, we often think. Surely it isn't as bad. Well, we need to recognize that every sin is worse than we think. Do you want to have a right view of sin? Do you want to see how, sin, how serious sin actually is? Well, then look to the cross. Look at the agony of Jesus. Look at the cost that the Son of God had to pay to forgive a sinner like you and me. You realize that until we see our sin in light of the cross, we will fail to see how serious sin is, and we will fail to see that our greatest need is for forgiveness. But, but may I suggest to you that Jesus' prayer not only points out to us our greatest need as sinners, but his prayer in light of that need points us to the greatest comfort that there is for sinners. Namely this, that there is forgiveness for sins. Jesus desires and delights in it to forgive. Think about it. If Jesus prays for those who are crucifying him, if he desires them to be forgiven, then do you not think that Jesus prays for you? Do you not think that Jesus desires your forgiveness? Is there not comfort here for even the vilest of sinners? 
Despite our sinfulness, which the Bible says is higher than our heads, Jesus in love desires forgiveness, love that is as high and higher than the heavens. Listen to J.C. Rollins, and, and this quote is worthy of full quotation. He says this, The Lord Jesus is indeed most pitiful, most compassionate, and, and most gracious. None are too wicked for him to care for. None are too far gone in sin for his almighty heart to take an interest about their souls. He wept over unbelieving Jerusalem. He heard the prayer of that dying thief. He stopped under the tree to call that tax collector Zacchaeus. He came down from heaven to turn the heart of the persecutor Paul. He found time to pray for his murderers, even on the cross. Love like this is a love which surpasses knowledge. The vilest of sinners have no cause to be afraid of applying to a Savior like this. Dear friend, if you're here and you've committed heinous and serious sins, if you are here and you're burdened by your sin, if you are aware of your great need before a holy God, then turn to this Jesus, this high priest, who offers forgiveness even for you. Hear how he prays and know this. He hasn't changed. He still prays. He still offers forgiveness. But we must also know this. This prayer for forgiveness isn't just a blanket forgiveness for everyone indistinctly of who they are. No, no, it's forgiveness given to and enjoyed by those who cling to Christ and let go of everything else that competes with Christ. It's a forgiveness that are those who are united to Christ. In Acts 32, after Peter preaches at Pentecost, after he preaches the gospel, after many people are converted and convicted for, for their part in killing the Son of God, Peter tells them what is needed for forgiveness. He says this, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, Repent of your sin. Leave them behind. Cling to Christ. Be identified with Him. And then you will have forgiveness for your sins. Or consider Hebrews 7.25. Jesus prays for and Jesus saves those with open arms who draw near to Him. It says that consequently He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. See, Jesus lives even now. He intercedes. And so if you come to God through Him, He hears. He offers forgiveness. Or even consider the comfort that is ours in 1 John 1 verse 9. It says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why can we be forgiven? Because we have an advocate with the Father. We have a high priest, Christ Jesus the righteous, who has given himself as the sacrifice for sinners 
for our forgiveness. And so if you're a sinner here today, know that there is comfort for you in this prayer. Because this Jesus still intercedes. This Jesus still desires forgiveness. See, at the depths of man's depravity, Jesus prayed for our forgiveness. And know this, even in the depths of your sin, Jesus still offers you forgiveness. And so why would you not come to Him? Why would you not believe upon Him? Why would you not trust in Him for forgiveness? What's keeping you today to find full forgiveness and pardon in the Son of God? Go to Him. Trust in Him. Lastly, we need to ask, what is the missional impact of this passage? And here in this prayer, we are given a picture of the calling of the saints. The calling of the saints. Jesus is not only our high priest who, who bears our sins and intercedes for us, but is our high priest who leads us with his example. You realize that on the cross of Jesus, he exemplified his own teaching. He practiced what he preached. In Luke chapter 6, uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, often called the Sermon on the Plain, he, he lays out what it means to be a disciple. Uh, listen to what he says in verse 27 and 28. He says, But I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, isn't that exactly what we see on the cross of Calvary? At the cross, he loved his enemies. At the cross, he, he sought their good. He, he sought their blessing. At the cross, he, he prayed for those persecuting him. And beloved, understand this. We are called to emulate Christ here. We are called to love and bless and pray for those who persecute us, even our enemies. I listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 21-23 for to this you have been called, because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, the point is this. We are called to follow the example of Jesus. We are called to do good to those who hate us, who oppose us, which means even forgiving them for sinning against us. An old author I read on this passage made the comment that this saying ought to cost us effort. What does he mean by that? Well, simply he means this. When we find ourselves wronged by another, when we are the recipients of injustice and evil, when we are tempted to, towards resentful anger, to complaining and quarreling and disputing, when we find ourselves there, we ought to remember this prayer and, and even repeat this prayer. Yeah, that, that's how the early church applied and used this prayer, actually. Eusebius, an early church father, who was also a church historian, he, he recalls the martyrdom of James, uh, Jesus' brother. And the story goes that the Jews tried to martyr James by throwing him off a building, and, and when he didn't die, they rushed to him to club him to death. 
And history tells us as they were beating the life out of him, he, he repeated this prayer. He exuded this prayer and he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. I realize, dear believer, this is your calling. To repeat this, follow the example of Jesus by forgiving others. I consider what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 31 to chapter 5, verse 2. He says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And know that's the missional impact and purpose of this saying. Where when we follow the example of Christ, when we reflect his compassion for sinners, when we pray for and forgive those who have harmed us, we are displaying Christ we're watching world. We are showing them the power of Christ in us and we are glorifying God who forgave us in Christ. Isn't that your purpose, dear believer, to, to glorify God by reflecting Him and His Son? Consider what 1 Peter chapter 2, 12 tells us. It says they keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, understand this. Reflecting God's compassion, especially to those who have sinned against us, has the missional goal of glorifying God. There's a story of a missionary couple that beautifully illustrates this. Uh, the story is told of this missionary couple in China that while they were riding their bicycles in a busy city, uh, the wife was knocked over by a bus and she was immediately rushed to the nearest ER and, and fortunately, despite serious injuries, her life was spared and she was able to recover. Now, while she was recovering, the, the Chinese authorities came and visited with the driver of the bus, and they said to this couple that, they, that the driver was completely responsible, and if this couple would sign papers and testify, this driver would be charged, arrested, and taken away. The couple, however, refused. In fact, they insisted that this driver go free and that he not lose his job. And the story is told that as this happened, when they interceded for this driver and, and pleaded his case, the driver in response broke into tears. And he had this to say, he said, my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters are Christians, but until now, I've never seen its attraction. Now I know it. It's love. It's forgiveness. Later on, that same couple, that same missionary couple, wrote about that incident, and they said this about that incident. They said, that was our greatest opportunity to witness to Christ when others saw Christians love and forgive. Dear church, what a challenge that is to us. 
Are we bearing witness to Christ by forgiving others and loving others as Christ loved us and forgave us? Now, Brian Chappell said this, I think about forgiveness, it's quite challenging. He said this, by the practice of forgiveness, we have the privilege, the privilege of being a living witness to those we most, witness to the one we love most and who loved us eternally and sacrificially. I, I wonder, do you see it as an opportunity, as a privilege to, to reflect Christ's love when others sin against you? Did you see injustice and evil as a privilege, an opportunity to make much of Christ? See, if we love others, if we seek their good, if we pray for them, if we forgive them, even when they sin against us, if we do this, we are putting Christ on display. We are being witness to the one who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, that prayer unmistakably points us to the compassion of our God. Compassion that offers us comfort in our sin, but compassion that also directs us to our calling to show that kind of compassion to others. See, if forgiveness is a pleasant aroma that flowers breathe when they are trampled upon, and if that pleasant aroma is seen in Christ on the cross, then the question becomes this. Have we been refreshed by that pleasant aroma? When the stench of sin fills your life and robs you of joy, are you turning to the Savior who prayed this prayer? Are you finding the light in His desire to forgive even you? But, but more than that, the question also becomes, having tasted and seen God's goodness, are we breathing out that pleasant aroma? As we live in a polluted world, polluted by bitterness and resentment and envy and anger, are we breathing out this pleasant aroma of forgiveness and love and grace? Are we reflecting Christ as we deal with wrongs? Oh, for our lives to exude the fragrance of Christ by being a people who are forgiven and by being a people who forgive. May that be true of us, and may the Holy Spirit help us to be such a people. Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this saying of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you that it wonderfully displays to us your heart, that you indeed are a God of compassion and love, that we cannot even fully begin to grasp or understand. Yet we pray, dear Lord, as sinners, that we would delight in this prayer, that we would turn to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as that great high priest who has been given for people such as us. And so we pray, help us to find forgiveness in Him, him and Him alone. Help us to repent of all sin. Help us to cling to Christ by faith. And help us to make much of Christ, even in our sin. And we pray that you'd help us as a church body to not just breathe in the pleasant aroma of Christ as He forgives us, but help us to breathe out that pleasant aroma. Help us to, to forgive as He forgave us. 
Help us to be a people who exude grace and love and compassion. Help us to be witnesses to you so that they too, this world too, would come to know the forgiveness that your Son has purchased. And so help us in this. Give us the grace to walk in your ways and give us the love to exude your heart to a watching world. We pray this all in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.